guys were excited to see me and see that I was teaching. Not, not because I'm such a good teacher, but, but because it means you guys are going to get out of here on time or maybe even a little bit early if you're lucky. So Pastor Chris is not here this morning. He, uh, he and Lydia took a little bit of a vacation together this weekend, so he asked me to fill in for him, and I'm just blessed to be here this morning. I'm excited to get into it with you guys. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to the book of Philippians. That is where we'll be this morning. Philippians chapter 1 is what we'll be studying. I love the book of Philippians, man. The book of Philippians has has been pretty close to my heart recently. Um, You know, the book of Philippians, I've, I've read it multiple times before, and I've always loved the book of Philippians, but it was never the book that I would necessarily say was one of my favorites, right? Like if someone were to ask me what one of my favorite books of the Bible were, I wouldn't say Philippians. I would have said maybe James, you know, maybe the Gospel of Matthew, Ephesians maybe, but I, I probably wouldn't have said Philippians. And it's not that I didn't like Philippians. It just, you know, it wasn't a favorite. But recently we just went through, um, about a couple months ago in the youth group, we went through Philippians. And so to actually sit down and to study it and just break it down and allow the Lord to speak to me through the book of Philippians, man, I, I got so much more out of it than I never had before in my life. And the Lord spoke to me in such powerful ways, and, and it got me excited for this book, man. And, I, and now I can say it's probably one of my favorite books. And if you haven't read Philippians, I would definitely encourage you guys throughout your week and your devotional life to read it. It's really good. Four chapters. You can get through it within a week. Um, super easy. And if you have read it, then I would encourage you to read it again, man. It's, it's a good book. And, you know, the, the Bible never gets old, and so the Lord can continue to speak through you even if you've read it one, two, ten times. doesn't matter. Lord can still speak to you. So anyways, book of Philippians chapter 1, to kind of give you guys an introduction, tell you guys what the book is about before we get into it. The book of Philippians was written by Paul the Apostle, okay, and it was um, Paul, he, you can read about this story in Acts chapter 16, which I'd also encourage you to go through uh, the book of Acts and see this, but Acts chapter 16, we see when Paul and Silas, they went to Philippi and, and how they got there. And that's kind of the start of the church when they got to Philippi. And so 10 years later, after this church had been planted by Paul, um, he is writing this letter to the church of, uh, of Philippi. And he had a really close relationship with the Philippians. Okay, They, they really admired Paul. They loved Paul. And in fact, they uh, took care of Paul and, and they helped him in his ministry. And they would help him financially. So that way, when he was in his ministry and he was going out and planting other churches and sharing the gospel, you know, he, he didn't have too much more to worry about. He could just focus on his ministry. And so they were helping him financially, right? And so they had this really close bond with Paul. And Paul is writing this letter uh, for three main reasons. Number one, it was just to thank them. Like I said, um, they were helping him out financially, but also thanking him just for their faith, right? They were, they were growing in the Lord, and they had a heart for the Lord and to continue to grow. And so he's thanking them. The other reason for writing this letter, Paul is warning them of false teachers. And so even though in the book of Philippians, he has nothing but good things to say pretty much for this church. We know it's, it's still not perfect, right? Every single church that we go to, you're going to have issues, and, and there's no perfect church that exists. I've once heard from a, a pastor. He said that if you want a perfect ministry or if you want a perfect church, you got to get rid of all the people, all right? Because that's, that's the, the ministry right there, but that's also all the problems is dealing with the people. And so with that, there was um, some false teachers that could have been creeping in, and so Paul is warning this church of these false teachers, and also a plea of unity. And so there's a little bit of division that was kind of going on in the church at this time. 
between these two women, and so he addresses that. And so those are the main points that Paul is hitting throughout this book. But the thing that I really like about the, the book of Philippians is the main theme of it. And the main theme of Philippians is joy or rejoice. In fact, like I said, only four chapters. It's a very small book. But you see the, the term joy or rejoice a total of 14 times. And so Paul is continuously talking to them about joy. And what I absolutely love about this is you would think that, that Paul, for talking about joy and, and writing this letter, he'd be in a pretty good place inside of his life, right? Maybe things are doing going well in his ministry. You know, maybe he's planting churches and people are coming to Christ. Do you know where Paul was when he wrote this? He was in prison, right? He was on house arrest. And you'd think like, man, that's like the complete opposite, right? You would think that, that Paul, man, everything's got to be going good for you, right? And, and things are going well in your life and, and your, your ministry is prospering. So what, what else would you talk about? Of course you'd be talking about joy. But it's the exact opposite we see here. We see that, that he was in prison and, and this was probably not a, a very easy part inside of his life, right? It was, it was difficult and prison in Rome in this time was much different than prison here in America, right? Prison is the sentence here in America. If you commit a crime they can, and they determine that you're guilty, then your punishment would be to go to prison for a certain amount of years. But prison in Rome in this time was just like a, a kind of a holding cell, right? Until they can figure out what to do with you and, and figure out if you were guilty or not. So Paul basically is in prison here waiting for a Roman guard to, to barge into his room and execute him in this sense, right? And for what? Just for preaching Jesus. And so he could have had bitterness in his heart. He could have been upset and mad. But no, he still talks about joy and this difficulty. And so that's what we're going to be talking about as we go through chapter 1 on how Paul still has joy even through difficult times in his life. So we'll start in verse number 1. Look with me. It says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, we'll just stop there for a second. Just in the introduction, a few things that I want to hit with you. Number one, it says Paul and Timothy. Um, understand that Timothy did not write this. Timothy was not in prison with Paul. Paul just makes mention of Timothy because Timothy did have a part to do with planting this church in Philippi. And he had been with, with Paul. And so, um, of course, they would know who Timothy was. And so he kind of makes mention to them just you know, kind of to comfort them and let them know that Timothy is, is doing well too and, and just to remind them of Timothy and, and they were very fond to Timothy as well. But one thing I want to look at, look what Paul calls himself. He says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ. I love that he calls himself a bondservant of Jesus Christ because you know what, Paul, you know he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, right? He wasn't technically one of the 12 apostles, but he still sort of holds that term of an apostle, Right? And so he could have very well shown his authority. He could have said, Paul, the apostle of Jesus Christ, right? And that would have been kind of the sign of authority in his life, right? It would be the same thing if I was maybe a president or a CEO of a company. And so I was writing a letter and I added that in, CEO of whatever company it is. And people reading that letter, man, they'd realize like, oh man, I should probably really pay attention to this letter because this guy's a CEO or he's a president. So he's pretty important. So let's look at this letter, right? But Paul doesn't do that. He calls himself a bondservant. And if you don't know what bondservant means, it literally means a willing slave. Someone who is a slave willingly. And we actually see this in Deuteronomy chapter 15. Um, I'll just be there for a second, so you don't need to turn there. But 
We see in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 12, it's the law concerning bond servants. And this is right after the children of Israel, they had um, left slavery from Egypt. And it says in verse 12, if your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. And when you send him away free from you, you shall let him go away empty-handed, or excuse me, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flocks, from your threshing floor, and from your winepress. From what the Lord your God has blessed you with, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house, since he prospers with you, then you shall take an awl and thrust it through the ear through the door, um, and he shall be your servant forever. Also to the female servants, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you. For he has been worth a double hired servant in serving you six years. Then the Lord God will bless you in all that you do. And so we see this instance of a slave. If someone uh, had bought a slave, we see concerning the law, it says that they can only have this slave for a total of six years. And going into the seventh year, you were to allow that slave its freedom, right? And it's the same reason because the, Egypt, or the Egyptians had put the Israelites into slavery, right? And so that's what God is saying is that the seventh year is the, the year of forgiveness of debts. And so the same for a slave, that after six years, going into the seventh year, if the slave wanted to have their freedom, they had the choice of doing so. However, there were certain instances where a slave did not want their freedom, that they actually enjoyed being a slave, that they, they didn't mind being a slave because their master took care of them and they loved their master and their master loved them. And so in this, this, this uh, instance where we see someone who didn't want their freedom of being a slave, what you would do is you would make them into a bond servant. So you'd grab an awl, which is kind of like this ice pick, and you'd put their ear to the, the doorpost and you'd pierce their ear and it would cause a mark on their ear. And that mark would represent a bond servant, right? And now you are now a bond servant for the rest of your life. It kind of seems like kind of a random thing, right? Like, like why would I pierce this dude's ear on this doorpost, and, and what does that represent? But understand something. Everything that we see in the Old Testament, it's all pictures of our, our life now today with Jesus, right? And so even though we don't follow the law, we don't have, we're not living under the Old Covenant, we're now in the New Covenant, that doesn't mean the Old Testament isn't relevant to us, right? And so we, we can see these pictures, and we can understand that it represents something in our lives today. And so it's the same here with the bond servant. So, of course, the piercing of the ear, this piercing was supposed to be a mark for this bond servant. It was an outward mark for people to see that he was a bond servant, and people would see that this person was serving their master for the rest of their life, right? And so that was the relevance of the piercing. So what is it for us as Christians, right? Not that we would have a physical outward mark for Jesus, being a bond servant of Jesus, but, but that we would let people know, hey, I'm, I'm serving Jesus, right? I'm a bond servant to my master, and we'd be unashamed of that. And we would let people know who we serve and, and who we believe in, right? But it, why the ear, right? Why of all things, why wouldn't it be somewhere else on the body? Why does it have to be on the ear? Well, understand that, that the reason why it's on the ear is because the ear represents the obeying the commandment of their master, right? And so we see actually in Exodus, uh, we see Aaron and his sons being consecrated unto the priesthood of the Lord. And so we see... Um, a few different things of sin offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings. But we see when, when Aaron and his sons are being consecrated unto the Lord and unto the priesthood, 
we see in verse number 19, it says, You shall also take the other ram, and Aaron and his sons shall put their hands on the head of the ram. Then you shall kill the ram and take some of its blood and put it on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tip of the right ear of his sons, the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot, and sprinkle it all around the altar. And so in this instance, we see this consecration of Aaron and his sons. The blood on the right toe, what does that represent? That means the consecration and the dedication of walking for the Lord, right? And then, of course, the thumb, it represents that I'm dedicating my hands, my work to the Lord. And then finally, the same thing with the ear. I'm dedicating that I would listen and be submissive to the Lord. And so that is what it was significant for the bondservant and, of course, even us today, that as a bondservant of Jesus Christ, man, we would be consecrated, we would be dedicated to listening to our master, right, as his servant. And then finally, the door frame. What does the door frame represent? Well, the door frame represents, uh, a door frame, what it would represent is it's, it's a passageway, right? So it's going from, from one place of your life unto the other. That's what a door represents. I like to think of it like Monsters, Inc. You know how when you just have a door, but when you open it up, then you're going into this whole new realm kind of a thing. And so that's the same thing with this door is that, that as you're entering through this door, as, a, bonds, as a, a slave, you were once a slave, and now you're becoming a willing slave right? What is that for us as believers? Jesus says in John chapter 10, I am the door. John chapter 10, he says, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. And so us as believers in Jesus Christ, being bond servants of Jesus, we were once slaves to sin. And now as we enter through this door, we are now becoming a bond slave, a willing servant for Jesus Christ. And so I love this. I felt like it was on my heart to share that with you guys to remind us who we are for Jesus, right? Not that we are under some type of burden for Jesus, but that, man, we are willing to give God our everything and that we would be this bond servant for Jesus because of what he did for us. And we have absolutely nothing to offer him, man. We, we, we are wretched sinners. We have nothing to offer God but our whole lives, man. We're going to give him everything that we possibly can because of what he did for us, for the grace that he gave us. So continuing in verse number three, Paul says, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making a request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul starts off this letter um, exhorting the Philippian church, letting them know that God has begun this good work in them. But he's also saying that, man, he thanks God for every time that God reminds Paul of the Philippian church to pray for them, right? He's not saying that, that he's sitting down and he's, you know, in this routine of, of every morning he's just going on his hands and knees and praying. He has this little prayer list for them. He's just saying, hey, I'm, to be honest, you know, like God just reminds me of you guys and, and I pray for you, you know? And if you're that type of person that, that has that list, right, and you're that type of person that's been in that routine of, of someone who has a prayer request and you write that down and every single morning you go before the Lord and pray, man, praise God if you're that type of person. You know, that's, that's awesome that, that you would be willing to go before the Lord every day. But let's be honest. I, I'm sure 99% of us don't have a list at home of, of, a, of a prayer list, right? Some of us, yes, praise the Lord, but sometimes we don't. But that's, that's not something to, to feel guilty about if we don't do that, right? What, what he's saying here is that, man, God just reminds me of you. And every time I'm reminded of you, I'm just going to pray for you, right? I think that's a habit that each and every one of us should be in, that when we are, are reminded of someone or we're, we're reminded of a need, 
that we would just begin to pray, you know. That's something that I'm learning personally in my life is sometimes I'll be at work and I'm trying to concentrate. And all of a sudden, man, I just start daydreaming, right? Or I just can't focus. I start thinking of somebody or some, some situation that I haven't thought of in years, you know. They, they've never crossed my mind until this point. And, you know, I can, I can say, oh, that's just like some weird daydream. You know, I can't focus. But what if God was, was purposely letting my mind drift to that person? What if in that very moment that person needed my prayers? And so I think that, that we need to get in that same habit, man, that, that rather than just saying, oh, it's just some random daydream or, or that's kind of weird that I thought of that person. What if it was God? You know, what if God wants you to pray for that person in that very moment? Because we don't know what they're going through in that very instant. And prayer is powerful. It says that, that when Paul was praying for them, he says, making a request for you all with joy. And so when he was reminded of them and he was praying for them, it was bringing him so much joy. You know that's what prayer does for us? Prayer isn't for God, right? We're not trying to convince God otherwise. God is God. He's not going to be convinced for our prayers. But God, or for prayer is for us, right? It's to change our hearts, and it's to change us. You know something that, that when we're talking about prayer and we're talking about praying for those who we love and need, you know, we also should be praying for our enemies, people who we're, we're angry at or bitter towards. It's something that we don't do very often, I'm sure. I can be one to admit that, that I don't do it as often as I should. But when you do pray for your enemies, even if that, that doesn't, if God doesn't change their heart and they, they continue to be bitter at you or angry at you, guess what? What's the worst that can happen? You are, you, God will change you and you will no longer be bitter. And this is what happening is, is Paul is saying, man, I'm thanking God upon every remembrance of you with joy for what he has begun a good work in you and he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. You know that when God begins something, that he's not just going to give up on it. When God begins something, I can promise you he will finish it. And in every single one of our lives, God has begun a work in you, and he will finish it. And there's nothing that can stand in the way. You might feel like, like you messed up somewhere along the road. You might feel like, like God has a specific will for you in your life, and you kind of missed it because you became distracted or you were afraid to follow God. But that doesn't mean God is, is done with you, right? Maybe it was God's will for you to do something else, to take a different action. But that doesn't mean God is just going to give up on the work he's begun in you. He can still use you. He can still have a will inside of your life, right? I like to use it as, as Google Maps for an example, right? Imagine if I was on the freeway and I was trying to get to a certain destination. And I put it in Google Maps and Google Maps told me, okay, five miles down the freeway, I'm going to take exit 19 and that will get me to my destination, and so I'm, I'm on the freeway, and I'm driving down, but along the way, it's five miles, so I start getting distracted, focusing on something else, and I miss exit 19. Is Google Maps going to tell me that I need to slam on my brakes and do a U-turn right on the freeway? No. It's going to recalculate, right? It's going to reroute me to the nearest exit that will still get me where I'm trying to go. And it's kind of a flawed example a little bit, right? But, but it's, in a sense, the same thing with God, man. We are going to make mistakes. We're human, man. We're going to fail. We're going to sin. It's not about failing. It's about getting up and coming back to God, right? When, when you fail, are you going to sit there in your failures and, and be worried that, that God can't use you anymore and become depressed or upset? Or are you going to get back up and say, Lord, I'm going to follow you, and, and I know that you still have a will in my life, and allow him to work in your heart? Paul continues in verse number 9, if you look with me, he says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, 
that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere without offense to the day of Jesus Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so Paul is saying, guys, you are on track, right? You guys are doing well. You're growing in your faith. But don't stop there, right? Continue to grow. Continue to abound in love and knowledge and understanding. You should never be content where you are right now with the Lord. You should always desire to continue to grow. Why? Because there is no such thing as a standstill Christian, right? As soon as you start standing still, what happens? You start falling backwards. There is no in-between. You're either, A, abiding in Christ, being filled with the fruits of, of, the, of righteousness, being filled with the fruits of the Spirit, or B, you're not abiding in Christ, and the works of the flesh become evident in your life and begin to take you over, right? It's that constant battle between our spirit and our flesh. And if we're not feeding our spirit, we are feeding our flesh. And so Paul is encouraging them, do not be content where you're at. You're doing well, you're on track, but continue to abound, continue to grow in your love and your knowledge. And he continues in verse number 12, he says, but I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I love this part here, man. Paul had every reason to complain in his life right now. This wasn't the first time that Paul had been arrested innocently may I, may I mention all because he's been preaching the gospel and he's been faithful to what god has called him to do and yet he's arrested he had every reason to complain he had every reason to blame god god why am i here god i could be so much more effective out there man i could be planting churches i could be sharing the gospel but instead you have me locked up in prison if you're the god of creation why wouldn't you get me out of this mess right but no, instead of that, instead of looking at this as a negative way, he says, man, this, God can use this. This is a way to further the gospel, right? He, like I said, he was in house arrest at this moment. And so back then, what house arrest was, is was you were arrested, you were in chains with a Roman guard all the time. So you had nowhere to go. You, you had no alone time. You were always chained up to a Roman guard. And so he said, well, rather than complaining about this, why don't I just start preaching the gospel, right? So he starts preaching the gospel. This guy has nowhere to run. You know, it's not like being out on the streets or someone could just ignore you. I mean, this guy has no other choice but to listen. And people were listening, and they were becoming saved, and other prisoners were becoming saved. And, and because Paul had this heart of, man, God is going to use me in this position of my life, God was able to use him, and God brought people to Christ, right? And it wasn't just that. It was people becoming emboldened, right? People were seeing Paul and seeing his boldness. The fact that he was in prison and yet he wasn't afraid of anything. That he was still willing to preach the gospel. And so not only was Paul preaching the gospel and people getting saved, but now other believers were becoming more emboldened and preaching the gospel. And, and people were becoming saved. And see, I guarantee you, man, that, that Satan in this very moment when, when Paul was in prison was doing everything he could to discourage Paul. And that's what Satan will do in our lives when discouragement comes our way, when trials and, and difficulties come our way. Um, Genesis chapter 50 verse 20 says what the enemy meant for evil God meant it for good and so when we go through times of trials when we go through times of suffering understand something that's not God abandoning you that's not God punishing you understand that that
times of trial and times of suffering will happen in our lives. And it's a matter of, are we going to allow Satan to destroy our thought process and, and not be effective for the ministry? Or are we going to put our trust in God? We're going to have faith in God that he's going to get us through this trial and this difficulty. Because what the enemy means for evil, God will mean it for good. And God can use these difficult times in our lives. Trials, pains, whatever it is in your life, God has a desire to use it for good. Amen? Paul continues in verse number 15. He says, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely opposing, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, I will rejoice. I love Paul's heart here as well, man. He's saying that, that there's people out there that were preaching the gospel, one out of a good heart, right? They were sincere about it. They wanted people to become saved. And so they were preaching the gospel. But then there were other people preaching the gospel, not out of a sincere heart, but because they kind of felt like they were in competition with Paul. You know, they were in like this popularity contest where people, they wanted the focus on them. You know, people wanted, they wanted people to appreciate them and their preaching and not Paul. And so they weren't preaching Christ out of a sincere heart. And they were actually happy that Paul was in prison. You know, they kind of looked at it as a way like, hey, this is a way for me to get ahead of the game. And, and you know, people will, will listen to me and I'll, I'll grow in my popularity. But I love Paul's heart because he's saying, I don't care. You know, I don't care if you're doing it out of a sincere heart or not. Like, God's going to deal with your heart. You know, it's not up to me to deal with your heart. And if you're in ministry or if, if you're serving and, and it's not out of a, a good heart, I mean, that's, that's ultimately between you and God. But, but Paul is saying, hey, you know what? I don't care. Christ is being preached. I'm going to rejoice in that, you know. They weren't preaching some false gospel. They were preaching Christ, right? They were pre preaching the true gospel. It just wasn't out of a good heart. But Paul is saying, man, you know, I don't care. I'm just happy that Christ is being preached. And I, I can't help but wonder if, if maybe this is the reason why Paul used this term, a bondservant, over apostle, was just to show his humility, right? Like I said before, he was showing that it's not about me. You know, I'm not, I'm not preaching Christ for my self-gain. I'm not doing this so, so people can look at me and praise me for being such a good teacher or, or, or preaching the gospel or whatever it is. I'm not doing it for self-gain, man. I'm doing it because I'm a bondservant to Jesus Christ. And he wanted to make sure that everybody understood this. Not because he's this apostle of authority, but because he's this humil humble bondservant, right? So Paul continues in verse number 19. Man, I feel like we're really cruising through this. Every time I study, I'm like, okay, I got so much content. Like, I'm going to be able to catch up with Pastor Chris and, you know, at least do pretty good. And then when I'm up here, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, this feels like five minutes just like rolled by or something. Anyways, well, thank you. Praise God. So continuing in verse number 19, Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Understand something that for us as believers, in all things, we are to allow Christ to be magnified through us, right? And ultimately, that's all that we can do as believers. We're not called to save people. The only person that can save is Jesus, right? He's the one that's going to do the saving. The thing that we're called to do 
is to magnify Christ, to be that witness and to be faithful to what God has called us to do. So that's as much as we can do. It's, it's to magnify Christ. And Christ needs to be magnified because the world is, is in sin and in wickedness. And to the world, Jesus is, is distant. Jesus is too far for them to see his goodness and the hope and the peace that he has to bring. For us, we can see it because we've been brought into this new light, right? And we're, we're in this new life with Christ. And so we see the goodness of God. We've experienced his grace and, and we see the greatness of God. But to the world, he's distant, right? Think of it for an example as, as the sun. We know that the sun is, is huge, right? It's much, much bigger than the earth. In fact, I actually looked this up and did some research. The sun is the diameter, or, or the sun has the diameter about 109 times wider than the earth, which means that you can fit 1,300,000 earths inside of the sun, which is crazy how big it is, right? But even though it is that big, when I look up into the sky, it doesn't look that big, right? I can kind of just like blot it out with my thumb. Why is that? It's because it's so unbelievably far away, I can't see the true greatness of how big it is. And the sun is nothing compared to some other stars out there. There's stars that are a thousand times bigger than the sun and can fit thousands of suns in between, inside of it, 1,300,000 Earths fitting in every single one of those suns. Absolutely ginormous. But you can't even see it with the naked eye. Why? Because it's so far away. It's distant, right? The only way that I'm able to see these stars is if I magnify them. If I take this telescope and, and I zoom in on them and I magnify them. Guys, that is the same thing with Jesus. We understand the goodness of God. We see the greatness and the power of God. But to the world, man, they become blinded. He's too far away for them to see. And the only way for them to see it is if we would magnify Christ. And this is what Paul is saying, man. Do everything that I do. Let Christ be magnified, whether by life or by death. He's saying, if I live or I die, man, I just want in all that I do, Christ to be magnified. And he continues on with this thought. He says in verse 21, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit for my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having the desire to part, to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident in this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may, need, may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Paul is saying, man, I'm not afraid of death. You know, he, he's in the situation where he doesn't know when his last day is, if the Roman guards are going to come in here and, and choose to execute him or if he would be set free. But he's saying, man, I'm not worried. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. And he's saying that he's hard-pressed between the two. He, he has a desire to continue in the flesh, right? He wants to continue living. Why? Because that is Christ, right? I can continue to preach the gospel. I can continue to be a light and magnify Jesus. But to die is gain, man. I mean, it's going to be so much better when I'm in heaven and I'm with Jesus and there's no more pain and no more sorrow. And this is the, the hope that, that Paul has, and he finds joy in that. I think that's one of the, the keys that, that Paul has here and his joy is hope, knowing that if tomorrow is his last day, that he's going to be with Jesus. And man, how, how awesome is that hope for the believer to know that, that there is life after death. If you've ever been to a funeral for someone who, who is a believer and the family's believer, 
of course, there's just sad, right? There's mourning because we love that person who passed away. They were dear to our hearts, and, and we, we cared for them. But it's a different type of mourning than it is for someone who's an unbeliever. It's a mourning of hope versus a, a mourning of hopelessness. And that's what the world has. It's a, it's a mourning because they don't understand what's next. They don't know what's to come after death. But for us as believers, man, we know there's hope that even though they passed away in this life, they are with Jesus forever, which is far better. And I'm jealous, man. I want to be with Jesus right now, dude. To live is Christ, but to die is gain, man. I can't wait for that day. Not, not saying I, I want a death. I have a death wish, but if I die, man, I, I have hope, dude. I'm, and I'm not worried about it. And, and we all should not fear death and to understand that there is hope because there is life after death. And it's going to be far better. Right? And that's what Jesus has to offer us is that hope and that faith and that, that joy to understand that we will be with him one day. And Paul finishes off this, this chapter. He says in verse 27, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or in absence, I may hear of your affairs that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel and not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof, proof of perdition, but to you of salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now you hear is in me. I'm going to read that one more time, just in a different version. Usually when I study, I like to try out different versions, and it kind of helps me to understand the text a little bit better. This is out of the CSB version. I really enjoy this one. It says, Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. And so Paul is finishing this off talking about this, this difficulty that we're going to face. And as we close up, I don't know if Matt's in here, but if Matt, if you'd like to, to come up as we, we finish, and we'll finish in a song. But so Paul mentions, again, this, this struggle, right? This difficulty, knowing that that as a believer, we will face hard times. And we will face troubles in this life. And we have an adversary. And the adversary is going to do everything that he can to destroy us, right? Because they don't want the gospel being brought forth. And understand me when I say this, when I'm talking about destruction, you know, I'm talking about difficulties and, and hard times and suffering in our life. Understand something. I think this is a common misconception. People think that in order to be a believer, I just have to suffer, right? And they kind of have this burden on their shoulders as a believer, like, like, if I'm not suffering, then I'm not really doing the work of the Lord kind of a thing. That is the farthest thing from the truth. It wouldn't make sense for Jesus to die on the cross for, the sin, for our sins and free us from the burden of, of sin just to put us under a different burden. That's not what it is, right? To understand that, that when we're talking about struggle and suffering, it's not because we're Christians. It's because we live in a fallen, sinful world. And I don't care if you're in here today and you're a believer or not. Every single one of us are going to go through hard times. We're going to experience pain in our, our heart. We're going to experience death in our life and then struggles and, and, and trials inside of our lives. So why would you go through that struggle? Why would you go through those trials without Jesus? Because Jesus is offering you 
a chance to, to lift that burden off of your shoulders and give it to him. That's exactly what, what Jesus wants from you. He wants for you to be free from all of your burdens. My yoke is easy. My burden is light, says Jesus. That's what Jesus has to offer. There's one thing I, I purposely missed on going back to the beginning of, of the chapter. Paul says in the introduction, he says in verse number two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you look at every single introduction of Paul and all of his letters, that's always how he, he begins his intro. He says grace and peace. Grace and peace. There's not one time that he says peace and grace. He says grace and peace. I believe that's on purpose. That's because you can never experience the peace of God without first experiencing the grace of God. The grace of God, that is the key for Paul here in these difficult times, in these, these trials, to have joy in this time. It's the grace of God to understand that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. No matter what I go through in this life, no matter what struggle I might deal with, God is so much bigger. God is so much greater, and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing that he can't handle. But it's up for us to, to submit to that, to be that bondservant, and to, to have that mentality that when bad things come our way, are we just going to throw a pity party and, and be all upset and, and blame God for our issues? Or are we going to change our mindset and we're going to understand that, that God wants to use us through our struggles? He's going to use it to grow us, make us more effective in our ministries and preaching the gospel. And he's going to, to free you and give you a peace that surpasses all understanding. There's a, uh, there's a song out there. It's called Grazing the Gardens. It's a fairly new song. I don't know if you guys have heard of it. But there was one time I was listening to, to this song when I was going through Philippians. And the Lord really spoke to me. There's a lyric in there. It says, I've searched the world, but it couldn't fill me. But now every desire is now satisfied here in your love. And isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth that I've searched the world, but it couldn't fill me? If you're in here today and, and you don't feel filled and you have a void inside of your heart, you are not going to find it anywhere. You can continue to search the world and, and try to be satisfied, but there's nothing that will satisfy. There's no amount of money. There's no house. There's no car. There's no relationship. There's no activity. There's no nothing that will satisfy except for one. Jesus is the one that will satisfy your soul. He's the one that'll give you fulfillment inside of your lives. And so as we end today, I'm going to pray for you. If, if there's someone in here, man, if, if maybe you have accepted Jesus in your life and, and you're struggling, you know, there's, there's a hurt or a pain inside of your life, maybe it's financially, maybe, maybe you're having some marital issues, or maybe it's, it's not even an issue like that. Maybe, maybe you're in here today and everything's going well for you, right? You're making good money. You have a good relationship. Things are going good for you, but even with everything going good in your life, there's still something missing. And, and you haven't accepted Jesus. I'm going to pray for you, and, and I want you to repeat this prayer after me in, in church, if you would, too, follow along in this prayer. And, and after I pray, we're going to have leaders up to pray for you as well. And, and Kevin and Darlene, are you guys going to be in the back? They'll, they'll be there to pray for you guys if you want one-on-one -on -one talk and, and just to pray. And, and don't leave here without prayer. If, if there's something going on in your life, give it to God. Bring it to the altar and allow God to deal with it and allow God to show you what can this be used for? How can this be a benefit to me to grow in my faith or, or to further the gospel? Amen? Amen. So I'm going to pray right now if you would repeat this prayer after me. Lord Jesus, I do believe that you are the Christ, 
I do believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I ask for forgiveness of my sins. Fill me of your Holy Spirit and allow me to walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen.